0: We are in John chapter 3, and we are continuing from verse 17. We've been kind of chipping away at verse 16 for three weeks now, studying the love of God. And uh, I don't necessarily want to dive back into that again this morning. Rather, I would, would prefer that we just stick with the text here and let it flow and see what we can get out of this, what Jesus intends for us to hear from verse 16 through verse 21 and, and by it to be changed. Now, as I said, for the past three weeks, we've been learning about the complexities of the love of God. And if you haven't been here uh, these last three weeks, then you've got some catching up to do because uh, we were all kind of thrown into the deep end, theologically speaking. Uh, a couple of guys left saying last week and the week before they needed to go home and put their brains on ice. And uh, that's the way I felt every day studying these things. Spurgeon said that if you want to find peace and comfort in this life, dive into the Godhead's deepest sea. And we've attempted to do that, at least dive down a little bit into it for the last three weeks. This week, however, I kind of want to bring us back up to the surface, as it were, and apply these rich, deep theological truths to the simplicity and purity of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, that's what John 3.16 is about, right? It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I understand this text, starting with verse 16, going through verse 21, Jesus is offering three foundational truths about how faith fits into the plan of salvation. How does faith and unbelief How do those things fit into the salvation plan? And so I see three things here. First, that divine love calls for saving belief. Secondly, that divine judgment is owing to unbelief. And third, that divine insight distinguishes between belief and unbelief. And so let's start at the beginning. Number one, divine love calls for saving belief. And what I mean by that is, I think what Jesus means by it here, is that um, man has responsibility here. Yes, it is the sovereign work of God whenever a heart is regenerated. Yes. But do not claim that your heart has been regenerated if there is not faith. Because the two always go together. Regeneration and faith. Regeneration is that divine act of God that he does all by himself. And faith is our first breath. We breathe in salvation. We breathe out faith immediately when God saves us, when we come to Christ, when you, you, you say it the way you like to say it. Just make sure it's correct biblically. And so when we look at this, We're going to see that love, love is not just a love that moves toward us. Love is is not just, remember, we talked about the five different kinds of love that we see in the Bible coming from God, five different loves of God. The third one was this kind, John 3.16, which was God's yearning, longing, desiring, and commanding love. That's all one of those five loves it's a yearning, desiring, but commanding love. And what is the command? Here's, here's how I want you to speak about the gospel. When you talk to unbelievers, when you talk to children, and uh, one of the ladies came to me this morning. She said, this has been so helpful because I've never really known how to talk to my children about this. You know, God loves you, but he doesn't. God died for you, but he hasn't. But, you know, how do we make any sense out of this? And I said, you know, that, that's so right. If, if you don't have your arms around the simplicity of this, then you can kind of get all tangled up in that. Listen, this is how you should speak to unbelievers or people struggling with their salvation. God loves you. God loves you. And that is why he commands you to repent and to be reconciled to God. God loves you. And so when the dust settles from all the theological debate about the complexities of the love of God, we come back to John 3.16 to discover that this message, the message of this verse, is still as simple as ever, simple enough for a child to grasp. Simple enough for your children to understand. What Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand here was that God's love is something greater than he'd ever imagined. It is not Israel alone that God loves. He loves the whole world and does not desire for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. How great is the love of God? If you want to measure a person's love, you ask yourself this. How much is he willing to sacrifice? Because to love is to give. To love is to give. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To love is to give. So how much, how much are you willing to sacrifice? of Your own desires, your own ambitions, your own time, your own treasure. That is the measure of your love. Not your feelings, not your Valentine cards and your pithy little, you know, vacuous, empty sweet nothings that you say to the girl of your dreams or to the guy of your dreams. That's not true love. All of that's easy. You get a little quiver in your liver and you go for it. (laughs) What's hard and what is a manifestation of true love is are you willing to give up yourself? Are you willing to sacrifice? How much did God love humanity? He gave his son, the only one. That's the love of God. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his Son, the only one, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, we're all familiar with that that verse. We all learned it as children. But it's important to notice here an implicit truth in this text. Implicit truth. Namely, that hanging over the head of every human being who enters this world is the sword, the invisible sword of God's just and holy wrath. In Greek mythology, there was uh, the story of Damocles, the king, who had a sword hanging over his head. This is where this idea comes from. And it's, it's that feeling, that, that, that sense that, yes, I have great privilege. There is great privilege here, but oh my, oh my, there is great responsibility. I live under the sword of judgment. God loves me, but he expects something of me. And what does he expect? He simply expects us to receive the treasure that he offers And if we don't, that's serious. That is serious. And so what is hanging over man's head, all men, because we're sinners, is the just and holy judgment of God. And that truth is so obvious and so intuitive that Jesus doesn't spend any time on it. And frankly, that's not his main point. In his mind, Nicodemus already understands that. Everybody understands that. Romans 1 tells us, and we'll look at Romans 1 in a little little while, but Romans 1 tells us that everyone born, everyone who is born into the world has an inherent knowledge of two things. Number one, that there is a God. And number two, because there is a God, we are accountable to him. That means we're in serious trouble. There is a God, we're in serious trouble. There is a God we can never measure up to his standards. Or at least we're not measuring up to his standards. There is a God. And if there is a God, someday, we know intuitively, someday, we are going to have to give an account to him. And the only people who don't accept that, Romans 1 says, are people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to believe that someday they're going to have to give an account to God. And so they just suppress that truth. And they say, that's not true. There is no God. That's what's really true. There is no God. We can live as we please, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. We push up daisies, and that's it. That's it. But that's not what God says. Someday we will have to give an account for how we lived. The author of Hebrews said it this way. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that, judgment. Judgment. But Jesus doesn't take the time to explain that here because it is something that Nicodemus and all of us intuitively understand. And it's not his point to expound on the depravity of man. His point point is to expound upon the, uh, the amazing, awesome love of God. That's what he's doing. And so what's the main point here? The main point Jesus wants Nicodemus to grasp is this, that God doesn't hate the world. Rather, God loves the world. Last week we talked about what world means. Just understand, we're not going to re-preach that, just understand when, when Jews like Nicodemus thought of the world, they thought Israel and everybody else is surplus population, right? Israel and everybody else is superfluous. Everyone else is expendable. There's Israel. There's God and Israel and a bunch of other people walking around the planet. That's not how God views it. It's not how God views it. God does not hate the world. You see, the idea is that the Jews understood that when Messiah comes, he is going to condemn the world. He's come to save Israel and condemn the world. And that's not God's view at all. He loves the world. He doesn't want human beings to perish. He doesn't want us to face the terrible and eternal judgment that our sin has earned. So what does the love of God compel God to do? The love of God compels God to do the only thing that could be done to save those whom he loves. He sent his son, the only one. He sent him to die on a cross. He sent him to bear the full measure of the wrath that we deserve. And what's the goal? The goal is simple, that we would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's Jesus' message here. Don't try to insert other things into John 3, 16 and 17 that aren't there. There's other places where Paul unpacks theology. This is not Jesus' Jesus's task here. Jesus' goal here is not to unpack all the mysteries of soteriology. He's wanting us to grasp the ungraspable that God loves, not just Israel, not just the remnant of Israel, but the world. And he takes no delight in any of them perishing. He wants them all to come to repentance. And so here is Nicodemus. Nicodemus here is sitting at the feet of Jesus in the middle of the night. Every sentence that Jesus speaks is a blow, an earth-shattering blow, a theology-shattering blow to all that Nicodemus has known and stood for And the idea that that the Messiah was not going to judge the nations is radical and so contrary to what he had always believed. But if they believed that, if Nicodemus believed that, which he did, then he was terribly mistaken. Because look at verse 17. Jesus explains, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge or condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. That's the goal, that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, the Messiah, came to earth on a rescue mission. He did not come to conquer, but to save. And by by the way, it's, it's this message is is perfectly consistent with what John set out to convince us of. And we've seen this many times already in the last 27 weeks of our study in John. John chapter 20, verse 31, is the interpretive key to the whole book, and it says this, these things I have written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole point. It's the whole point. God loves you. He wants you to have life. He's provided for you to have life in the name of the Messiah who came, not to judge, not to kill, not to destroy, not to conquer, but to save. And so here we have it. The love of God moved the hand of God to save the Son of God, to rescue rescue sinners from the wrath of God. That's the gospel. The love of God moved the hand of God to send the Son of God to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. And that's at least half of the gospel. Because even though this is why Jesus came, it doesn't mean that everyone in the world will be saved. It doesn't mean that everyone in the world will be saved. Nor does it mean that everyone in Israel would be saved. Because in the middle of this declaration from the Lord Jesus Christ of the love of God that God shed abroad on the earth through the Messiah, determined to bring sinners to eternal life, in the midst of that exaltation about the love of God coming to save, Jesus reveals a condition, a condition. We could ask it like this, who will become who will become the beneficiaries of God's saving love? Answer, those who believe. Those who believe in the Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Here is this loving, yearning, desiring, commanding love of God. He loves us. He made the provision for us. And now he calls all men everywhere to repent. and To embrace the love that he has given. It doesn't mean that everyone will believe. What it does mean is that it's available for everyone. And someone will say, isn't that obvious? I mean, really, is that where the sermon's going? We've heard all this before. And some of you, I see it in your eyes right now. I've heard all of this. We've heard this ever since Sunday school class. Salvation comes through believing in Jesus. That's right. In some sense, everything you need to know about the gospel you learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me that. It tells me so. Repent, therefore, and believe. Um. And that's true. It is obvious to us. Um but it wasn't obvious to the Jews. It wasn't obvious to the Jews. They thought salvation came by keeping the law. And by the way, it's not obvious to modern Catholics today. Their approach is based on an in, almost entirely on the Old Testament ritualistic system. It's not obvious to the cults, which each, each one of them has their own system of works righteousness, and it isn't obvious to Islam which has its own works-based approach to finding favor with God. We may be overly familiar with the idea of salvation through believing in Jesus, but no one one else in in the world believes that. And the Jews certainly didn't believe it. And here's the thing, Nicodemus didn't believe that. And that's who he's speaking to. This was new. This was shocking. This was kind of earth shattering to Nicodemus' theology. You mean Messiah's not going to come to condemn the world? He's really not going to. What kind of teaching is this? This goes against everything I've ever been taught. The Messiah's not going to come and condemn the world. The Messiah actually loves the world. This was shocking. You know what Jesus was telling Nicodemus? Essentially, this is what he's saying to Nicodemus. I say it this way because I want you to feel the impact of it. Basically, essentially what Jesus is saying in Nicodemus is this. Everything you were ever taught about the way of salvation is wrong. Your seminary education, worthless. Your theological degrees, your doctorate, the fact that you have been um, in you've been brought into the guild of the local lawyers that you are a person of prestige all of your degrees they're not worth the paper they were printed on and your relationship with jesus with god is a sham that's what jesus was telling him it's all worthless you got a nice suit you got a ridiculous hat You got little bells on the bottom of your, uh, of your robe there. That's cute. It's ridiculous because none of what you believe is actually true relative to how people are born again or how they're saved. So everything you've ever been taught about the way of salvation is false. Everything you've learned in your theological degrees is worthless. In fact, there's one more piece to this. Not only is all of that worthless, but your only hope is to put all of your trust, all of your belief in me. That's pretty bold. Leave everything else behind and put your eternal salvation entrust trust it to me. I'll take care of you. Bold? Brash? Maybe. But beloved, this was this is the most loving thing Jesus could have ever said to Nicodemus. I think too often we hold back when we're sharing the gospel with people. We don't tell them, God hates your sin and wants you to give it up. We tell them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you should tell them that God loves you. Yes, God loves you. But you can't have God and your sin. You can't have God and your pet little sins here more than a man can have his wife and his paramour. His girlfriend, his wife, is going to be furious. Have you ever seen that kind of fury? You never can imagine God's fury. And it's because he loves you that he tells you to repent and find your joy, find your satisfaction, find your hope, find your salvation in him. And so was Jesus being bold? Was he being brash? Yes, in one sense, but this was the most loving thing he could ever say to Nicodemus because divine love requires saving belief. And from this point on, Jesus focuses on that belief. What is belief? Not just belief, but unbelief because what he wants, what he wants Nicodemus to see here is that when we talk about unbelievers. He wants Nicodemus to understand that he's one of them. Despite the fact that he goes to church every Sunday, well, Saturday for him, despite the fact that he has a theological education, well, I've known some people who are theologically educated beyond uh, anything I can imagine myself ever being, and, and they just strike me as people who are lost as can be. Your theology, getting a theological education doesn't secure anything except that you are probably tempted by a great deal of pride. That's no no argument for not pursuing a theological education. You should. And guard your heart from pride. It's education for exaltation. All of your education should point you to Christ. If it points you to you, then you need to repent. And so Jesus wants Nicodemus to see that he's one of these unbelievers as it stands now. So number two, divine judgment is owing to unbelief. Unbelief. Now, what would Nicodemus have thought? Divine judgment is going to descend upon people who are, not have the right lineage and who don't obey the law of God. But look at verses 18 and 19. He who believes, notice the emphasis on belief here. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged when? Already because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. <clears throat> Let's remember what's going on here once again. I know I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but it's so crucial that we understand this. Almighty Creator God, chose in an act of unimaginable grace to extend to a world of sinners his love rather than his wrath. That's what's going on. And how did he do that? He sent his son to die in their place So that those who embrace the love of God by believing in his Son, they will escape eternal judgment. I mean, how good is that? You will escape eternal judgment. How? Receive the love of the Father which comes to you in Christ. Believe in Christ. Believe what he did. Believe that you need what he did. And cry out to God that he would give it to you. I mean, how good is that? How good is that? I mean, free? Not something you can earn? Just something you have to honestly admit that you desperately need and ask for it? It's yours. I don't think we have the capacity to understand the depth and the height and the breadth of the glory of this gift. But we understand enough of it. We understand enough of it to ask, since this gift, this treasure, is so glorious and valuable, why aren't sinners stampeding, stepping on each other, running over one another to get it? And they're not. You know, proof of that, go downtown on a Friday night with our crew, and share the gospel with people in downtown Fort Worth. Find a good old-fashioned unbeliever and uh, try to share the gospel with them. Now, it's not like that everywhere in the world. You can go to some places. Jeff Lamb went into Honduras, and almost everybody he talked to wanted to hear. But in America? In America? Here? I mean, even here in the buckle of the Bible belt? Um... You try to share the gospel, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to stop. They don't want to stop. And they, they report to the police that you're harassing them. So they, they tell our guys, you can't, you can't pigeonhole people. You can't get in their way. You can't talk to them as they're going by. You can only hand out the material. If they want to talk to you, let them talk to you. And all of these restrictions, all of these ramps, why? Because they don't see it. They don't see gold. They don't see precious stones. They're not stampeding to embrace this gift, this love of God? Why? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Why would they not fly to the cross? I mean, imagine, think about the things that people do, the ridiculous, some of the ridiculous things that people do to get rich. Um, one time we were sitting over at Wesleyan, uh, Texas Wesleyan for a swim team, and I used to, first hour, I'd sit out there and watch Animal Planet with my twins, and and uh, one time they had this, this program was on, I don't know, is who could be scared the most, I don't know. And, and anyway, the only thing I remember is, uh, who could be scared the most and endure it? So they had this plexiglass box, and they were putting people in, in a t-shirt and shorts, and they were pouring, you know, big bucket, buckets full of uh, South American roaches. They were about this big. And, uh, you know, who can stay in under a pile of that the longest without freaking out, right? And you're going, really? Turn the channel. I don't even want to see that. And you turn the channel and you get to another program where a bunch of fat people are dim- displaying their bodies and, and they're trying to um, outdo the other fat people and losing as much weight as they can. And they're humiliating themselves in front of the world. And, and there's not even any guarantee that they're going to win any money and you have women who go through excruciating surgeries and and painful diets hoping that that will garner them favor they'll find a man they'll catch themselves a man and there's no guarantee about that and yet they do it None of these approaches comes with any guarantee of success. So why, when God offers humanity the most valuable treasure and, and most secure treasure in the universe, free for all takers, anyone who wants it, why don't st- sinners stampede to get it? Why? And the answer is in verse 19. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and watch this, men loved, loved darkness rather than light. You could say it like this, men loved darkness rather than Christ. Or you could say it like this, men loved darkness rather than God. God Darkness. You want darkness? How about eternal darkness? They loved darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. That's why. That's why. The light here, sometimes in the Bible, the light is truth. The light is moral purity. Here, the light is a a takeoff from John chapter 1, where it's referring to the logos who has come in flesh. He is the light and the life that light that 's Christ that light came into the world, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. The light here is Jesus, and why don 't sinners run to the light it 's because men love darkness rather than light, in other words, unbelievers love sin that leads them to death rather than the Son who brings them life. Is it any wonder they 'll be judged? Consider the cost of the gift that you gave. Now, you young men, think about the girl of your dreams. Got her picture in your mind, and you want to marry her. And so you work all summer earning money to buy a ring. You work all next semester. You work the next, you work a whole year because you want to buy her this gift. And you've laid out every spare hour that you had And we're willing to go into debt, but maybe resisted the urge. Maybe not, because it's worth it. You're thinking, it's worth it, whatever the cost. And the day finally comes, and you get down on your knee, you crack open the box, you show her the ring and say, will you marry me? And she says, no. (laughs) But can I have the ring? uh awkward <laughs> no i come with the ring <laughs> and she says no what, what what whatever made you think that i would love you well you you ride in the car with me when i take you out to ice cream and you come over to my house all the time and you pretend that you like me and you take other gifts that I give you and I, I just thought that meant you like me. No. I love the ice cream and I love the money and I like your family. But I don't want you. Except that this is not an analogy. This is Reality. God cracks open the box and he says, this is my love for you. It's my son. I've given him, he's died for you so that you won't have to endure the wrath that my law requires against you. I love you. I don't want you to perish. Here's the greatest gift in the universe. Take it. And you say, I don't love you, I don't want that. I want my sin, I love it more, turn off the light. I love my darkness. Is it any wonder there will be judgment? Imagine the fury it's a terrible thing, the author of Hebrews says, to fall in the hands, into the hands of a living God, for our God is a consuming fire. And the grim reality is that since, since they don't believe in the name of the only begotten Son, they are, verse 18, already under God's judgment. The perfect tense there indicates that they have entered into a continued state of condemnation because they have refused to enter into a continuing state of belief. Because they have willfully rejected the most valuable gift offered by the most worthy of beings, they now live under the condemnation of Almighty God. And We talk in theology often about the already and the not yet, especially in in eschatology, we talk about end times. We think about heaven. We think about our relationship with God and the blessings of our relationship with God. And we read things like when the Apostle Paul says, the pleasures of this life are, are I mean, infinitely outweighed by the, the treasure that we have stored up for us in heaven. Nevertheless, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the blessings now. We have some of those blessings now. It, it is almost, the Spirit, Paul says, is like a down payment on what is to come, and so there is an already. We already know the joy of the Lord, the peace that passes on understanding. We see him bearing the fruit of the Spirit in measure in our lives. And yes, we have been changed. We love Christ, we hate our sin, and and that love and that hate are growing in measure. But we understand it's nothing compared to what we're gonna have there. The same is true for the unbeliever. There is an already and a not yet. The not yet is eternal damnation in hell. The already is the condemnation that you live under every day. And I would just say, as some of you are hearing my voice right now, your life is a mess. And you don't have a clue why. You made some kind of, you said some kind of prayer some years ago. You would call yourself a Christian. You go to church. You, you hang out in his house. And you benefit from some of his Benefits some of his common graces. But you don't love him. And what's going on in your life is evidence of God's condemnation already. Just a taste of what is not yet. It's a frightening thing, isn't it? We tend to think of judgment as a future state in the fires of hell, and that certainly is true, but here, as in other passages, we learn that the judgment of God on the unbelieving has already begun. Turn with me just briefly to Romans chapter one, Romans chapter one. Because here we see it, Romans 1:18, "For the wrath of God, the wrath of God. Just say wrath condemnation, judgment, whatever term you want to use, the wrath of God is revealed, not shall be revealed, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. At the end of verse 20, it says, therefore they are without excuse. So the wrath of God is already Upon the unbeliever. And what does the wrath of God look like? Look at verse 24. Therefore, God, what are the next three words? Gave them over. Say it with me. Gave them over into lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. In verse 26, For this reason, God, what are the next three words? Gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God, what are the next three words? gave them over to a depraved mind. You know what a depraved mind is? A depraved mind is you get to a point where God gives you over to your desires. Your desires get intensified, intensified, intensified until you can't even think straight anymore. You want to know what's happening in our world today, in in the Western culture? You see some of the decisions that are coming down from the high court and from the politicians in Washington, and you think, how in the world can they rationalize this? Answer, depraved mind. Two plus two doesn't equal four anymore. It, it equals whatever, whatever you want it to equal. Whoever has the most power determines what it's equal. And that's, that's where it's going. This is judgment. This is judgment. People get all riled up when someone says, oh, God's judging our country. Well, that's because you have a wrong understanding of judgment. When you think of judgment, you probably think either of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, uh, 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 what do you call that, brimstone, fire and brimstone coming from heaven, or you think of final judgment, people being cast into hell. We don't see any of that. We don't understand completely the, the, the judgment of God. There's more. We talk about the complexities about the love of God. The judgment of God is equally complex. And there is such a judgment as the judgment of abandonment. Where God gives you over to the things that you desire. Because you love them rather than him. And some of you hearing my voice today have given yourselves over. have given yourselves over to the lust of your heart. And it is God's judgment on your life. It is God's judgment. And yet he still pleads with you to repent. He still pleads with you to repent. As long as there's life, as long as there's breath coming in and out of you, the word of God will call you to repent. But there will come a time, Hebrews says, when like Esau, you will search for repentance with bitter tears and not be able to find it. And so this is the beginning of God's judgment upon those who have spurned his love. Judgment is a familiar term. It's a courtroom term. It's part of, it's part of John's courtroom vocabulary. He loves this, these kind of terms, these kind of, this kind of vocabulary and, and there are other such terms in the book of John. He talks about testify and testimony and judgment and verdict. In fact, in verse 19, we see verdict. Here's what it says This is the judgment. Verse 19 actually means this is the verdict. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. In other words, the judge has already weighed the evidence and has found you guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of damnable unbelief. And what is the nature of the unbeliever's crime? Robertson Nicole writes this not to perceive the glory of this august being whom John so adores, not to receive the revelation made by the only begotten is proof not merely of human infirmity and passion, but of wickedness, chosen and preferred in preference to revealed goodness. I would rather have wickedness and darkness, than the glorious goodness of God. This is the verdict. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The only reason sinners don't stampede to the cross of Christ is because they love their sin. You see why regeneration has to be a miracle of God? God has to step in God has to step in and change that part of your inner being that loves certain things. Because by nature, all men love darkness. All men love their sin. Only the Holy Spirit can so move in your heart as to give you to to transform that into a love for Christ. Christ. But when that happens, your first breath will be, I believe. I believe. It's a frightening thing, isn't it? That humans are capable of being so in love with their pleasures that we become blind and insensitive to the perilous state we are in before the judgment bench of Almighty God. Unfortunately, there are many religious people in American, in the American church who live under the condemnation of God and don't even realize it. They don't know it. And because they hang out with God's people, they go to church. They pray to prayer at some point in their life. But behind the scenes, if you were to really get into their life, you'd find all kinds of sin, all kinds of practiced sin, habitual sin. And so is it possible to know who has genuine belief and who's really living in unbelief? It is. It is. And verses 20 and 21, tell us. And Jesus has already told us how people are regenerated. It it happens by being born again. It happens by regeneration. Here, he's talking about the fruit of it verse 20 and 21, and here's what he says. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And so here we go. The distinguishing mark of an unbeliever, no no matter how much he professes to know Jesus, the distinguishing mark of an unbeliever is his life of blatant unrepentant sin. And it's and it's hardly believable that that even needs to be said. But it does because there are so many people in so many churches who are living a life of blatant sin and calling themselves Christians. Do you know someone who says they're a Christian and yet their private life is full of pornography, partying, partying, sensuality, and other obvious sinful practices? Don't be deceived. Here's what Paul said, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are these, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And did I miss anything? He says, and things like these. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list. Did I miss anything? Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of God. You know what he's saying? People who act like that go to hell. The church in America needs to hear this, beloved. You know why our counseling ministry is perhaps our most fruitful evangelistic ministry in the church? because our counselors aren't afraid to say these things and to read these scriptures. We know these texts. We know this this Galatians chapter 5. You say, Galatians 5, all the fruit of the Spirit. No, 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 no. There's a list before the fruit of the Spirit. We need to start there. It's the deeds of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 6, another list, similar list. Ephesians chapter 4, another list. And in each case, Paul says, I've warned you about this. Doesn't matter. And all three of these were written to churches. People who act like this go to hell. And this is perfectly consistent with what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3. Turn there very briefly. I'm running out of time, so you're going to have to move. 1 John chapter 3, watch this. And and just go home and read all of 1 John because it all sounds like this. And let me just say that, you know what the worst thing you can do in counseling? When someone comes in and they, they reveal, they, they finally have the courage to expose the litany of, of sins that they're involved in, that they don't want anybody to know about, but they finally come to the end of themselves, and, and they're willing to tell you, you know what the worst thing you can do is? The worst thing you can do is not question their salvation. That may be the root of the whole problem. And we try to confuse it. We try to make it complex. You know what John tells us? It's not complex. Just pick up in verse 7. We could read after this and before it and get the same message. But it's most poignant, I think, here, beginning with verse 7. John chapter 3, verse 7. 1 John 3, 7. Little children. I love it when he says that. Because the implication is, you're going to be able to understand this. And I need that. (laughs) Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because he abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, watch this, the children of God and the children of the devil are, what's the next word? Obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now watch this thing about practicing. Practicing means you're trying to get good at it. Your impulse, your internal impulse, either moved by this Holy Spirit or by the flesh, is to get good at it. You want to teach a boy to play baseball? You throw him the ball, he doesn't catch it. You throw him the ball, you give him a little instruction, he doesn't catch it. You give him a a little more instruction, he finally catches it. All right, good, good, good. Okay, I'll take a couple steps backwards. He's practicing, he's getting better. Now pick up the bat. Now we're gonna swing the bat and strike one and strike three and strike 200 and finally he gets a piece of the ball. He's learning, he's practicing and every day he's out, he's getting better. I remember what it was like to practice sin like that. Growing up in New Jersey, trying to be as sinful with my language as I could be. Practicing sin. I'd hear a word, a vulgar despicable word that I'd never used before, and I'd light up. I've got to learn how to use that. How do I use it in context? How do I make it funny? How do I make it shocking? Practice. You know somebody who's practicing sin or they're enslaved to it or it's the dominating influence in their life, they're ruled by it? You should bring them this text and all those texts in Paul and say, don't you understand? People who act like this go to hell. In my experience in counseling, it's been exactly what people have needed. I've got some of the most loyal friends you could ever have. Because in the moment when it was needed, I questioned whether they actually knew Christ. And they came to him and found him to be. Everything that God promised to be for them in Jesus. And they're no longer shackled by those sins. They're now living like a child of God. Not perfect. But walking in the light. As John says in First John chapter 1. Not having no sin, but realizing you have an advocate with the Father. Hating your sin and being open and honest about your sin so that you continually abiding in fellowship with Christ because you're not letting sin pile up and dominate your life anymore. That's the difference between believer and unbeliever. You know why an unbeliever doesn't want to come under the light of the the preaching of the gospel and doesn't want to hang out with people in church and hates you for your holy life and your holy conversation? The reason they hate that is because they love their sin and you intimidate that, You threaten that. You're not impressed with that. Everyone who does not hate evil, I'm sorry, for everyone who does evil Hates the light. It's not going to come into the light. For fear that his deeds are going to be exposed. Now watch the other term here. Verse 21. He who practices the truth comes to the light. It's a continually coming into the light. And every morning, I hope this is your experience, every morning, opening the word of God, bowing your head before the Father and bringing yourself into the light. Like David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. I'm not afraid of your spotlight. I'm not afraid of anything that you would do for me. No good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. God, manifest the work that you are doing in my heart and cleanse me me afresh. Cleanse me anew. I long to live in your light. That's the heart of a true child of God. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be not exposed but manifest as having been, watch this, wrought in God. What's that about? That's it about it's about passages like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We love 2, 8 and 9, and we, don't, we, we, we bail out before we get to 10. It is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Don't we love that? Not of works, right? We agree with that. Lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What? For Good works, or you could say, for bearing fruit, not by good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus is just saying the same thing: They come to the light so that their deeds would be manifest as having been wrought in. Here's how Jesus says it in John 15, 8. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so what about you, dear friend? Do you realize how much God loves you? He loves you. He does not want you to perish because he loves you. And every day of your life, he opens the box and says, here is my love for you. The cross of Christ, his righteousness, his bloody death, his resurrection, it's all for you. If you will have it. Remember what he said to Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I... Desire to gather you together like a, like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Beloved, don't spurn his love. Don't reject his love. He proved his love by sending his son into the world to bear the wrath in your place and to become your salvation. Will you continue to love your sin more than you love God? Will you continue to reject God's gracious gift? Or will you today fly to the cross and find in Him forgiveness of sins and reconciliation and unfathomable joy and adoption in Christ? That's faith. It's simple faith. You see, beloved. God offers his saving love to all through the cross of Christ. Salvation must be grasped by the hand of faith. Let's pray. Once again, Father, we confess that these, while ultimately simple truths, they are deeply profound. And we love to read them And we love to learn them. And we love to use them to propel us into worship of you. Thank you for revealing these things to us. We need you, O Lord. Every hour we need you. We need you to put your searchlight on us every day. And we praise you, Father, that because of your forgiveness, because you've blotted out all of our sin, because you've taken away our shame and replaced it, With the joy of knowing Christ, we love to be under your searchlight. And so we say, Lord, search us. Find anything in us that you're not pleased with and and rid us of it. Because we want to be wholly yours. Praise you for your salvation. Praise you for this glorious gift. May we treasure it above all things in this life and in the life to come for Jesus' sake.